And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Shia. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Greatland.com and on the other line, he knew that bolo tie was going to come back in style. It's Andy Greenwald! Hey, buddy. Man, What's up, man? Is time a flat circle? I feel like we just did one of these. Oh, you are the monster at the end of my dream. That's so sweet. You always know just what to say. Andy, true detective back. Yeah, this is a big time. People pretty Twitter excited. Twitter tried to kill it. He tried to suck all the fun out of True Detective Season 2. But Nick Pizzolatto would not let them do that. No, He's the one who one... sucks the fun out of things. Yeah, if there's one guy who knows about having fun, <laughs> it's Nick Pizzolatto. Uh, Andy, it's so nice to talk to you. We're going to be talking about things other than Game of Thrones today. Uh, we will talk a little bit about Thrones. We, we have a little bit of a, a bit to talk about there. But for the most part today, we're going to be talking about the second season of True Detective, which airs this Sunday on the mm-hmm. HBO network. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about your out-of-nowhere Cinderella story, favorite show of the summer, Deutschland yeah. 83 from the Sundance yeah. channel, right? Yeah, I'm psyched to talk about that. Okay, cool. And uh, maybe we'll get to some music at the end if we still have time. But let's go to uh, let's go to True Detective. Um, let's set the scene, man. I mean, obviously, this was a very divisive show for you and I. I, I remain an uh, avowed worshiper of the first season. This thing almost tore us apart. It did. It was really one of the first schisms. It, it really was. It, we we had a, like a, a Russ Cole, Marty Hart kind of uh, fork in the road, you know, where you went off to find truth and 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 drink heavily, and, and I just went back to my suburban life with That's my right. children and and their weird pictures that actually represented nothing. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, we but we we pushed through it, and you know, here's here's the big picture thing about True Detective, it, and I, I I feel like I said this a lot last year, and I feel like it's important to say it again this year, even before we talk about the specifics of season two. I didn't like the show. Everybody knows that at this point. But I really, really liked the phenomenon of the show because Mm -hmm. as a TV critic, but also as a TV fan and an enthusiast for the medium, it was pretty fun to see people get so excited about something again. You know, I think that that it it was for me, it was it was doubly interesting because I thought that the material, the the, the material, the the show itself wasn't necessarily worthy of all of the fan enthusiasm and weight that was placed on it. And I think I'm not alone in thinking that the end was probably a little flimsy compared to what came before. But just the fact that, you know, how many weeks was it? Eight weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks, two months. um, Everyone, everyone went nuts and everyone went nuts. And when the Internet goes nuts, that's not always a good thing. But in this case, it was it was awfully fun, even if I was watching it from from outside of the newly painted murder shack with my face pressed up against the glass. Aside from a few, you know, obviously Breaking Bad and Mad Men have birthed their own online communities of theorists and and um, and 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 sort of fonts of knowledge mm-hmm. in terms of people who thought they could predict out Breaking Bad and they wanted to they they knew who was going to be falling at the end of Mad Men or whether Megan Draper was going to be a Charles Manson victim or something but uh I don't think any of those shows met like the same kind of had the same kind of fan theorizing that True Detective did not since Lost probably have we seen a show that really just had people Tracking down some like some ancient texts, man. Yeah, people people were people were really bookmarking Cthulhu. Yeah, you know? getting you know, into some got... pagan idolatry. I didn't. I hadn't seen that many hash, Lovecraft hashtags. You know, I never expected to see that in my lifetime. Um, but I gotta say, again, with the the passage of time, that flat circle. I'm gonna keep keep rolling with that one because that's really the only line of dialogue I remember. <laughs> um, I really admired the way you watched the show, Chris. Can I say that? Yeah, that's very nice of you. 
I really did because you, you know, from your vantage point as uh, as an editor on the internet, but specifically, you know, you're you work on the culture side, but very often your day is consumed by the sportsy side of the site, except when we're chatting, and you were thus able to keep yourself out of the wave pool of 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 the Twitterverse when it came to the show. And I think that what you were able to take out of it was the parts that you liked and the parts that you didn't like didn't offend you. You know, I, I, I really liked that. I thought you kept it very even keeled because I know you didn't love everything about it. Sure. So, but the highs were high enough so that, that when the season was over and you wrote about this in December at the, you know, in our year end package, you were the stuff that you were talking about was the stuff that you loved, like the, the, the Kerry Fukunaga um, tracking shot, for example, or, um, I don't know. I mean, you were you were pretty into the reconnaissance as well, right? Like, yeah, you, I was you into, enjoyed it because it played with the stuff that you like to see, and you just were able to put aside the other parts. Yeah, and I think that this is actually a useful way of getting into talking about the second season because one of the things that I loved so much about True Detective season one, and one of the things I've seen one episode, you've seen a few more than that of the second I've season. Th- I've seen three. Yeah, yeah I'm writing about um, it for, for Thursday. One of the things that I am enjoying about the second season is how much it seems like an extension of a lot of the the crime fiction that you and I both love, uh, yes. and also the culture around like crime pop culture, whether it's crime mil- films, noir films from the 40s and 50s, from the 70s and 80s and 90s, yes. whether it's um, you know novels from Raymond Chandler all the way up through some of the modern masters like Pelicanos and Lehane, this work and Pizzolatto's imagination seems very much part of that tradition. So for as much as people were really fascinated by some of the more symbolic aspects of the first season, for me, the attraction to it was always the... Um, the very traditional like men on a or or detectives trying to f- solve a case um right you know and 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 the whole physician th- heal thyself parts of that yep and also Carrie Fuganaga's take on noir and putting so much of the noir in the broad daylight um and just how uh considered and meditative his f- filmmaking was in, in relationship to so much of the direction we see on television. so And it's worth noting, you know, the, visually the show was completely unique. And um, unfortunately, I think it remained unique because the, the just the, the demands of one director shooting every episode of a television series is almost impossible, certainly under the time frame that HBO required because, you know, the, they wanted a second season on in 2015. There's just simply no way for one director to be, to prep all those episodes and be on set for all those episodes and, and do everything necessary. So this season, uh, more of a grab bag. The, the first two episodes were directed by Justin Lin, best known for his contributions to the Fast and the Furious franchise. And then the later episodes are handled by some of HBO's all-star team, people who have worked on um, many other dramas, but especially Game of Thrones, like Miguel Sapochnik, who we, we shouted out for the Hard Home episode a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, Dan Atias, um, who I think has done Thrones. I know he's done, done Homeland, which is Showtime, but my point stands. Anyway, the, the um, and this is not an unheard of phenomenon in HBO yeah. shows. Martin Scorsese directed the pilot for Boardwalk Empire, and you know the you directors set the template. Yeah, and acted as an executive producer. And yeah, you set up a visual template. You introduce a, a visual dialect for what it's worth, and you can pretty much farm that out to other directors. Now, I would caution, or I would at least say that I don't know if it's hard to overpraise what Fukunaga did. Uh, by all accounts, you know, shooting while location scouting, while doing edits, while working with actors, while working on the script with Pizzolatto, like his, that was very like LeBron in the finals, what Fukunaga did for, to, to make yes. an eight hour movie, which is basically what that was. 
uh, and to have some of those signature set pieces. But also, I mean, and I talked about this a lot in the piece I wrote at the end of the year about the show, is uh, there was a lot of the quieter moments that were just dazzling and were made exceptional because of the choices he was making in direction, whether it was just a simple interrogation scene. And sometimes that dialogue in those interrogation scenes is dialogue you have heard in 10 to 12 other cop shows. But there was something about the way that it was staged and shot that was just, it was unlike anything we had kind of seen before. Here's here's the thing. I mean, the, the beauty of the, the limited series or the event series, the anthology series, whatever you want to call it, is that if you didn't like one season, maybe you'll like the next one. Um, the only constant here is cop investigating stuff and Pizzolatto writing all the episodes. Um, I am definitely more interested just from my own personal taste, much more interested in California noir than I am in sort of uh, Louisiana Bayou mysticism. Mm -hmm. It's just a more interesting um, uh, canvas for me. Um, I think that one of the things that it was hard to separate in terms of my reaction to the show was that I, I was trying, I was looking at it on two levels. I was disappointed in the first season just in terms of the content. I was disappointed in it dramatically. I thought that it was a lot of, it was all hat and no cattle. It's a lot of like dorm room philosophizing with very little to show for it. Um, but I also was considering it in a larger contextual scheme of things. And I, you know, this, and this influenced my writing on it too. It bummed me out that this was being held up as the great next thing because it seemed so reductive in a lot of ways, you know. Um, Pizzolatto is, and remains, let me say, entirely humorless in his writing, which is just not something I generally like. Um, writers better than me, like Emily Nussbaum at The New Yorker, went into the, the treatment of women in the series and just the disinterest in all, all other swaths of humanity, for the most part, that weren't these two main characters, these cop main characters. Um, so, there were so there was the problems with the show itself and then with the larger critical culture. Um, I've tried to take a page out of your rule book before uh, considering the second season, and, it, and it's helped a lot. What's interesting, and, and we're going to jump ahead. We're not going to talk specifically, too specifically about it. But the most interesting thing about the second season so far to me is that I, you know, it, it's it's less ambitious visually, obviously, with with the with the the, the lack of singular vision. Um, a lot of the mysticism and and uh, Lovecraft stuff and all the hypothesize stuff that drove the hypothesizing. A lot of that's gone too. It's in many ways a lot more straightforward TV show, and that makes me like it more. But I'm very curious because I think it's going to make a lot of people love it less. Um, so before we even get into any of that, I, I think that you and I wanted to talk a little bit about in the few days remaining before the show premieres, set people up with some of the. Uh, some of the, the, the cultural hors d'oeuvres that may have. Yeah. So to this Andy meal. and I don't want to take away the joy of watching it on Sunday or, or the misery. Yeah. Um, let me just say, yeah, as someone who liked the first episode, joy would not be the, yeah, first uh, the, 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 the ritual. Let's put the it engagement. that way. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to take away from, from that. You know, it's, it's part of the, you, it would be silly for something that's been so anticipated to for us to go into two great specifics. But as you guys probably know, uh, this is not about the, the, this neutral season of True Detective is an entirely different story with entirely different characters, and yeah. it it retains the writer, the feel, and the basic like overarching idea that there is a crime that has been committed that eventually has to be reckoned with. Um, other than that, it's a different, it's a totally different uh, show. But like the first one, it draws heavily on mm -hmm. some really cool influences. And one thing that Andy and I thought would be neat is if we just kind of talked a little bit about some of the things that we're seeing and hearing from the, um, from the shows, from the episodes that we've seen. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's summer. If you guys are bored, feel free to indulge in some of this stuff if you haven't already, because it's some of the, the great 
like works of creative art of the last 50 years certainly in our opinion yeah yeah. um so i guess i wanted to talk first a little bit about obviously this is a show that um deals this is a a season that's going to deal with corruption in california um and i don't think that they're you if you say those words the first thing you have to talk about is chinatown um yep it's uh Roman Polanski's film from the 70s starring Jack Nicholson written by Robert Town. It's basically a um a riff or a variation on um Raymond Chandler's mystery novels from set in California in in mm-hmm. post World War II. Uh this obviously had a kind of cynical carotid 70s feel to it. People were obviously coming out of uh, a special time in American history and there had been a lot of lost innocence to some extent and that's reflected so you see a time period in american history that was supposed to be very optimistic which is sort of post-war california but instead is depicted uh, as this very um damaged and uh corrupt place and uh this is clearly like something that pizzolato is drawing a lot from yeah yeah because the the central idea um, in Chinatown is is the battle over water, which is actually weirdly prescient considering the state that you guys are in right now. But the idea that something so essential to life and something that so many people consider as a right, you know, not a privilege, that sort of the, the tortured history and the corrupt dealings to actually get it to people is at the root of that. And 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 interestingly, this new season of True Detective doesn't deal with water. That would have been pretty interesting. But it does deal with, with pollution and it does deal with transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I know... Doesn't it doesn't sound sexy, but if you if you've ever sat yeah, in but, traffic in the four hundred five, yeah, exactly. But it's another thing that we think about. Well, people should be able to get places. They should be able yeah, to get on a, a freeway. They should be able to take a train. Certain roads and certain train lines. Where things done in the public name and in the public trust very often have uh, an ability to enrich the private sector uh, in a way that is, that is that is potentially filthy. And I I really like I like I love it in Chinatown. I really like it. Um, I, I really like that aspect of of the new true detective uh, Vince Vaughn's character is a, you know, a, an aspiring straight businessman who comes from a not a, a pretty crooked background. And he talks often about, you know, things to pass on to future generations, this idea of becoming uh, the sort of rich where you leave land to people. Um, and that ties into the, you know, the, the, the root of, of, of the California dream, right? It was the, it was yeah, the gold rush that led people out there. And the idea that, that we can not only rewrite, because all, if all of America was the idea that you could start over, California was the place where Americans could themselves start over. Uh, the last frontier where you could sort of make make generational wealth that was supposed to go out of style back in Europe. And um, I know you have a couple other things you want to mention, but I, I was drawn right away to a parallel between uh, the new season and one of my all-time favorite books by probably my all-time favorite writer. It was a guy named Ross Thomas. We talked about him back when we had the Double Down Book Club. Uh, which I hope we resurrect someday. He was uh, a phenomenal thriller, crime mystery writer. He wrote um, over 25 books from the 60s until he died uh, in the early 90s. My favorite book of his has a very impolitic title. It's because when he was drunk at an author's convention in the 70s, he bet another author that uh, he could put the two least sensitive words that the guy could come up with in book titles and make them bestsellers. <laughs> and uh, those, words, those words were uh, Chinaman and Dwarf. And in 1978, he wrote Chinaman's Chance, and a few years later, he wrote The Eighth Dwarf, both of which were amazing. Chinaman's Chance. Did either of them wind up being bestsellers? I, I think his books. I don't know. I don't know if they were like top ten bestsellers, but all of his books sold really well. Yeah. Um, in the time, and then were weirdly kind of forgotten. Um, Chinaman's Chance is specifically about the investigation of, like True Detective season two, of a fictional 
L.A. adjacent town. In this case, it's on the ocean side as opposed to on the Inland Empire side. And it's called Pelican Bay. Um, and, you know, the, the entrenched power structure there basically is built to enrich itself from the mayor to the chief of police. And it's a lot more... Um, comic it's a lot more bright and light and i god i wish that someone would make a movie or a tv show out of it but in the same way that that the true detective is it creates a lightly fictionalized version of what feels like a very real place next to some absolutely real things uh chinaman's chance is a good entry point into that kind of kind of uh storytelling i i would never want to be forced to pick between ross thomas and elmore leonard but i will say that if you like elmore leonard you will yes. be blown away by ross thomas if you haven't read his books and you like elmore leonard books and you like crime humane crime books that are full of like wonderful characters with incredible dialogue and incredible skill and they're timeless like there's so much of it is you know you'll read and there will be fax machines or you know the first car phone or whatever but you're not going to read this and think that you're you know get get stuck with any of the politics of it these are stories that are just as fresh today as they were when thomas is writing them in in the 60s and 70s and and 80s and just 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 both are just littered with these like immaculately delightful and charming lowlifes who know how to do everything they know where to get a fake passport how to pick a lock um how to pack the right kind of whiskey in your suitcase along with a handgun i mean these are great books but specifically if we're talking california that i I would and i would actually just in general if you're starting ross thomas i would recommend chinaman's chance um but particularly in relation to this conversation. Yeah, I think um, the other one I wanted to, the author I wanted to mention was Joseph Wambaugh, who um, was really great at chronicling corruption and the sort of damaged personalities um, in the Los Angeles Police Department. I, I was going to mention James Elroy's L.A. Quintet, but yeah. I think Wambaugh is almost a more accurate reference point. I'm not sure if Pizzolatto is into him at all, but two books in particular, Onion Fields and Choir Boys. Um, Wambaugh was just incredible at talking about um, the the depth of personality for the cops and the criminals in Los Angeles, and often how one you know the criminals could be just as brave as the cops, and the cops could be just as corrupt as the criminals, and how many of these people ultimately wanted to do something good with their lives and were just unable to because of various reasons. Um, it feels like True Detective in terms of the characters that Taylor Kitsch and Colin Farrell play. One's a highway patrolman, and the other one is a detective. And and but Rachel McAdams' character as well. We're going to get a lot more into the uh, police department aspects. Um, you can see already like various departments clashing and you can feel that, you know, and, and, these yeah, guys, jurisdictions. jurisdictions and these guys have different roles and different fields of expertise. And um, none of them are perfect people by by any means. And I, if, if you're looking for more stuff on, on the LAPD and um, its modernization and in a lot of ways... You know, we talked about California as the old as the old West. These guys were these guys envisioned themselves as sort of half out like half half bandit, half half marshals. And it, it's it's always an interesting line that they walk. Um and the books are great. They're they're really well rooted in in, in real life and, and the dialogue is fantastic. Let me throw one more author out there, a guy named Newton Thornburg. Yeah. And Newton Thornburg wrote in the seventies and eighties, um, and he was such a great and really rough chronicler of basically the the death of the hippie dream in the wilds of california his best known book is called cutter and bone and there's a pretty good movie with jeff bridges made um with it by the same title but the book i'm recommending is called dreamland i believe it's still in print and it's basically about hippie drifters just getting caught in lurid just squalid la um drug and sex world of drugs sex and crime and those are the three words that that sort of 
get Nick Pizzolatto excited enough to do another Vanity Fair profile of himself. Um, it's it's it, it's this idea that underneath the glitz and glamour, you know, are the real people who are just grist for the the, the star making mill. Um, it it's kind of a a much much rawer version of Nathaniel West's uh, Day of the Locust, which is a famous LA book that I yeah. actually don't think has much to do with True Detective, but. Um, <laughs> like we, should, what if we just started naming like, and then there's East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which <laughs> is also set in California. <laughs> that's a good one. That's yeah. another good book. Uh, yeah. I mean, by the way, as we're naming these, could we can we throw these up somewhere? Because I know that we're yeah, going to start getting uh, tweets being like, "What was I, that fourth one?" You we said? can throw them in the blog post for the podcast, and then I'm happy to to pin a tweet or something with a couple of these things there. Um, I think we still have the Double Down Book Club Tumblr. We can put it up. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention, yeah, just, which is neither people people want to know about that that's still snitchbutlers.tumblr.com yeah. we, that exists though we haven't updated it in a while yeah um one of the last things i wanted to mention uh was just that how important music was in the first season of true detective mm-hmm. um i don't think i will ever forget the part when uh wu-tang clan was a clan in the front came on during the raid scene yeah that was and then dope. the episode that same episode ends with i believe honeybee by uh that came in the bad seeds, which is or no on Grinder Man, um, which yeah. is pretty in, in, insane because I love both of the songs. Um, the music so far for True Detective season two is much more atmospheric and scored. I think uh, there is yes. some songs, but it's not like you get a just a great rap track playing as somebody's running into a building or something. The music kind of reminds me of Henry Mancini's Touch of Evil score which I think is a useful touchstone for this, um, as most people in this show are touched with evil. Uh, Touch of Evil is obviously um, the Orson Welles Tartan Heston movie uh, set at the Tijuana border, um, and it's one of the great crime films ever made. And Henry Mancini's score is bananas. So if you get a chance to look that up on Spotify, it is definitely worth 40 minutes of your time. It's one of That's the great soundtracks. Really- I'm really glad you mentioned that because I have to say one of the for me one of the missed opportunities of the of this season of the show is it lies in the soundtrack because you know I, I basically I, I still think that many many times in the making of the show and in the writing of these characters and in the way that they're sort of humorless and the bluster I, I kind of think that Pizzolatto is very often full of shit. that said to be you have to be full of shit to buy so completely into the noir the california noir swagger that 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 we are both fans of so i like it just ha- so happens i like the clothes he's putting on this time i think more than the last time um it's it's the moments that have, that sort of take me out of it the moments that are a little too on the nose are um often come from the music in this season like the the opening theme this year is a little bit drowsy and and there's a couple times when there's a singer songwriter who you just know he stumbled upon like one night putting back johnny walker to an ojai bar you know, like the sort of fictional bar where there's the young, tortured female singer-songwriter who's singing a plaintive lament that's just perfect for the cop's inner mindset. Mm-hmm. I really, really wish that instead of talking to T-Bone Burnett, who is a sort of poet laureate of scuffed Americana, that he had gone in a different direction and done what Steven Soderbergh did with the Nick, where he hired Cliff Martinez to make a completely anachronistic synth-pop score. You know, like there's, there's, there's the, the instruments on the Nick in the way that the synthesizers cut against the old timiness that is so jarring and surprising and unsettling. And I kind of wish that, that they had been bold enough to make a music choice. I'll be fascinated to see. I, I think one, one of the things you're getting at here is that the most successful crime fiction or, you know, when I say crime fiction, I mean shows or movies or books or whatever. The most successful crime fiction is at once, uh, embracing its own tropes yes, and then destroying right. those tropes. And I yes. think that, 
in the first season, Fukunaga's direction was the destroyer. It was the disruptor. It was the thing that would just push things slightly to the left so that it wasn't just McConaughey opining and, you know, Bayou voodoo wisdom and stuff like that. And this I think season, that's a great point. Yeah, I don't I'm know. We're gonna, not... It remains to be seen what the disruptor is. I imagine that it's going to be one of these four main performances. And, you know, uh, Andy and I don't want to go into too much into specifics, but just get ready for a couple of weeks of Colin Farrell talk. Listen, let's <laughs> let's clear our throats for a second. You might think we like these obscure books, <laughs> but we love Colin Farrell. Yeah. If you don't like Colin Farrell, if you have Fright Night on your dartboard, this might not be the podcast for you anymore, or at least not for the next two months, because he has long been one of our favorite actors, so much so that both of us, independent of the other, separated by two or three years, wrote loving tributes to his unappreciated talents on Grantland. He is doing a cannonball into the pool right now, man. You And you might be like, whatever, I like Colin Farrell, I'm ready for this. No, you're not. Because not only is he amazing in this, but yeah. he does some brolic in this show so just strap in and just get get real like in touch with how you feel about colin farrell and we're going to talk about it for about two months because this is also what something like true detective should do like again my own past opinions about some of pizzolato's work aside this dude loves the words he's writing but the only thing he loves more than those words are the actors he hand chooses to say them so he he had much more power in season two than he did in season one because of the success of season one. And so he was basically given carte blanche to hire people because yeah. obviously everyone wanted in on this project. So I'm not sure if you wrote these parts specifically for these actors, but you know that he was the one going to bat for Colin Farrell. And frankly, people need to go to bat for Colin Farrell because he's very misunderstood and underappreciated and rarely gets to shine in the right kind of roles. What's what the best performances often come from someone in power taking a chance on someone who needs that, needs that chance. And then the person who needs that chance just ripping into it like a hungry dog, basically. And let's just say that when Colin Farrell's character, whose name is not Ray Velcro, unfortunately, it's Ray Velcro, which sounds cooler, I guess, although it's less funny, says about himself, I like to get wet now and then from a number of bad habits. Rest assured, he means it. He means it. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at uh, that. He, yeah, he's 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 terrific. Um, what should we say now that we've primed the pump and we've talked about the pump? Should we? What should we say about Sunday? I think that we should just say prepare for something different and some of the same. I think that that. Go into it with an open mind, and I think you'll be more pleased than if you go into it being like, who's going to be the Woody, who's going to be the yes. Matthew, and who is going to be the Michelle Monaghan, and what's the Yellow King? It's a different story. It's a different set of people. It's much more difficult to tell a story like this. There are four major characters here. Right. Um, and they all are going to require screen time, and you could fe- you're going to feel a little bit more traditional television, A plot, B plot, C plot, D plot stuff going on. Um and and which, I think, you know, but which, again, I, I think is for me, I'm happier with that. Like, I, 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 I'm happier with it being a little bit more circumspect in its in its ambition. I'm happy because it allows some things in the background to really pop. Like, I, I think if you think about the first season, does anyone remember any of the performances, really? I mean, maybe you remember that that Ann Dowd was wanting to make flowers at the end. But oh God, I forgot about for that. For the most I'm sorry. Sorry, all of America for reminding you of that. But there's a guy named Richie Coster on the show who's an English actor who was on Luck. Um, 
which was, you know, because it killed horses, the show itself was killed. He is just, he's turned up to 11 and he's fantastic to watch every time he's on the screen. And it, again, like these are the choices that I think make for a richer experience when, when, the, when the focus is allowed to expand a little bit, when there's room for people to get weird. I mean, Rick Springfield is in the show and I won't talk any more about why, but Rick Springfield, yeah. Jesse's girl, come on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just very curious. I'll be very curious. We'll talk more, obviously, on yeah, Monday. Yeah, we I'm don't have that curious. much longer to wait for the next pod, so I think that we can pretty right. much table I, all of our first first episodes. I just want to say that I'm really eager to hear what people think about it, particularly because I was able to watch three in, in rapid succession, and of those three, I'll just say the third was my favorite. Okay. Um, okay, so we're tabling that for now, and we're going to talk about something else that I really like. Yeah, right? let's take a quick break, and we will come back and talk about Deutschland. Guess what, guys? Game of Thrones is over. It's time to go outside. Don't look like a White Walker anymore. Go outside and get a tan. Go get some sun. Go hear some music. Maybe go see a baseball game. If you want to do any of that stuff, there's one way for you to save money on sports and concert tickets, and that's a 100% free service. It's called SeatGeek. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online, so it's like Kayak.com for concerts, festivals, and sporting events. There's no other ticketing app like this. You can just download it onto your phone, and then you can just shop around. It has a technology called Deal Score that lets you see where and how much you're paying for tickets, whether you're getting the best deal possible. So this week, guys, I want you to do one thing. Use promo code HOLLYWOOD in the SeatGeek app and get $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Don't say I never did anything for you. It'll only take a minute to download this app. To redeem your promo code and save $20 on tickets, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code HOLLYWOOD in the app. And SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app today. Enter promo code HOLLYWOOD. SeatGeek app is your ticket to summer tickets and sports. All right, Andy, we are back. Uh, you wrote a piece today on Grantland. Um, and this dot com. Is, dot com. Dot com. Uh, this is actually my f- one of my favorite times of year for TV, but for you too, because I feel like every every year a show comes out of nowhere and really grabs your attention and you write about it and then I watch it and I love it usually. <laughs> no, and then, and then you're like, yeah, the bridge isn't that good. No, but uh, uh, The Honorable Woman is what I'm thinking oh, yeah. of. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, well, like, I, these shows yeah. that come along that are come out of nowhere and we just, you know, it's good summer te- television. A couple episodes, kind of a good story, you know, actors we've never seen before or never seen in this way. Uh, not a lot of expectations, not a lot of like, oh, do I have to have like a take on, on Tyrion or whatever? Just good television. And you seem to have stumbled upon something. Yeah, I think uh, Deutschland 83 is the name of the show. It premieres, we're recording this on Wednesday. So it premieres tonight at the very weird time of 11 Eastern, 10 Central. I have no idea why they're doing that. Uh, but it'll be on Wednesday nights. And obviously, if you're listening to our pod on a different day, I'm sure you can find it on demand on Sundance TV. Uh, it is, Deutschland 83 is the first german language show ever to be broadcast in this country and you know if you aren't already sold i don't know what else to tell you uh no it is uh let's see how to describe the show it is a spy story set in obviously in germany in 1983 and it is about a young east german soldier who is ferried across the border more or less against his will to be placed undercover in the west german army right at the moment when the cold war was at its hottest and when synth pop was kind of at its coolest so he is in bonn working for a a general while nato is desperately putting in nuclear warheads and the rhetoric is going up meanwhile he's pretty psyched because he gets to hear duran duran on a walkman for the first time and the Obviously, the comparison to this show is The Americans, which, as 
people know and Chris is tired of hearing is probably my favorite show on TV. In fact, the first episode, tonight's episode, begins exactly where the Americans' third season ended with Reagan's Evil Empire speech. But So if you like the Americans, you are going to like the show. But here's the thing. If you don't like the Americans, I think you're going to like the show. Because unlike the Americans, this show is incredibly fun. Like, it really kind of embraces a lot of the the sort of genre excess and absurdity that you and I like often in books or in movies. There's a lot of old school lock picking and people screwing up brush passes. But really what the show is about is about youth because the main character, Martin, is very young. His girlfriend back in East Germany is young. The son of the general who he befriends, they're all in their early 20s. And they're all growing up in a time when everyone around them is being like, well, the world's going to end. And it's not just going to end theoretically because where they are on the German border is basically ground zero for where the bombs are going to go. So there's this exuberance that's in the show. It's in a fun to the show, and it's reflected in the soundtrack because they got everything from New Order to Nana on the soundtrack. Um, I think it's a blast. And I did a, an event with the creators um, this week and spoke to them. And so this is an eight-part miniseries, but they're already talking about doing Deutschland 86 and Deutschland 89, which I think is, I mean, that, that seems really cool to me. I love the idea of telling this, the end of the Cold War through these characters separated by a few years. Yeah, that would be really awesome. So what, when, do, when does it air? Uh, airs tonight, Sundance TV. Um, so that's Wednesdays. That's Wednesday. Okay. Wednesdays. Yeah. So did you? Were you able to check any? Of I was it out? able to watch some of it, and one of the things that I think I'd shout out is just uh, you know, in in the tradition of blowing so much hot air about Carrie Fukunaga just a, a few minutes ago. Yes. Looks great. Yes. Uh, this show it is, really is, one of the things I really loved about the John Le Carre adaptation that came out last year, A Most Wanted Man, uh, was the use of this um, post-war. German architecture and the that was way a terrific that movie, by the yeah way. and the way that um, help me out what's the guy's name again who directed it the the dude who made all the Nirvana and YouTube video Anton Corbin yeah. uh, the way that Anton Corbin used the architecture of Germany specifically Hamburg to frame this incredibly complex spy story and just in the little I've watched Deutschland eighty three that has that same kind of vibe of just sort of really taking advantage of the scenery and making yes. you feel like you're in these almost like weird dorm room dormitory type buildings or these strange buildings with these very symmetrical slats everywhere and, and it takes angles on the action that are surprising um it looks down on people looking down on things like there's a scene where all these stern-faced east german stasi agents are trying to examine a floppy disk because they've never seen one before yeah i don't want to so like it, it, blow it out of proportion but it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh the conformist which is the bertolucci movie um from the 70s which is obviously like a, a masterpiece but the same sort of use of the outside world to reflect the internal lives of the characters was going on. And I thought that was really impressive for something that was obviously modestly budgeted. And, and is yeah, just, you know, like speaking of that, at, the, at this event the other night um, that they had here in New York, uh, the director, this guy named Edward Berger was there. He wasn't, he just happy. He just wanted to be there to support the show. So I was speaking to him and he was just talking with real enthusiasm about it and about how the freedom it gave him. And it was interesting in general, the conversation, because the vibe I got from people was that German TV is definitely not having a golden age moment like American TV is, or at least not yet. Um, the most successful shows on German TV are either very much like the German CSI or the German Law and Order, of which there seem to be many, or like as the star, um, Jonas Ney told me his favorite show on TV is, is New Girl. Like they just huh. get mostly American shows there, yeah. Game of Thrones and Homeland. So there really isn't this opportunity to tell serialized stories with this kind of ambition, and hopefully this changes it. Anyway, he was he directed five of the episodes. He wanted to pull, do a full Fukunaga, but they didn't have time. Um, and so he was talking to the, a woman who works in development at Sundance, and Sundance, you know, helped pay for it and helped co-fund it with a German network. And 
she was describing where Sundance is. And, you know, I, I'm pretty big on their stuff. They've done a lot of co-productions like Top of the Lake. And uh, their ongoing series Rectify is one of my favorite things on TV. But, you know, it, it's minuscule in terms of viewership. Um, this is basically like the art house cousin of AMC. And, you know, until Walking Dead, AMC was kind of an art house cousin of itself. Uh, and she was basically like, yeah, you know, we're very modest. We do shows that are basically $3 million an episode. And he was like, oh, wow. Do you know how much we filmed Deutschland for? And she was like, tell me. And he was like, 900000 an episode. And no one could believe it because not only does it look amazing, but it's period. So you have to make everything look yeah, like right. it's 1983. You need all those cars. You need all the clothes. That's crazy. I mean, I guess I guess the answer is just Germans just want it more. You know, you wouldn't have thought that based on the two world wars, but yeah, they 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 just want it more. Uh, well, uh, that's exciting. I'm going to check out some more movie we, we talk about it in a couple of weeks, and people should definitely check that out. Especially, you know, it feels like you mentioned this in the in the piece, but these are always kind of the fun times of the year when things loosen up a little bit. Maybe you don't feel mm-hmm. like you have like three hours of television on a Sunday and four days to talk about it and then getting back into it. You can just kind of pick and choose, DVR some stuff, check some stuff out that you maybe missed. Um, I want to catch up on Halt and Catch Fire. We should probably talk. I want to recommend it's coming out, I think, in about two weeks, a show that's going to be, I believe, on Amazon. Yeah, it's on Amazon called uh, Catastrophe, which is very funny. It's kind of a... It's a Channel 4 show from England, but it stars an American comedian named Rob Delaney. And um, it's about – it's just sort of like a rom-com, a very modern rom-com. It's very funny. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that so when it comes where on. Where does this come from? Where do all these things come from? So I don't know, but British this is show? what happens when you get yourself out of uh, Dragonstone. You start to notice that there's all this other stuff happening. Yeah, but the problem is is that you know, you're still carrying the you – know, the, 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 the head of Netflix is still behind me ringing a bell saying, shame, shame, let's, shame. But let's talk I never about finished, this for a second. I, I never you... finished Bloodline. I didn't, I, I'm dying to finish Daredevil. I'm way behind. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's catch-up season. But you did, uh, you know, I'm sure people are sick of us talking about uh, Game of Thrones-related material. But you did have a bit that you wanted to kind of share with me and talk a little bit about, especially in relationship since True Detective oh. is sort of taking Game of Thrones' slot on Sunday now. Just about yeah, just, like the importance of of uh, the, the 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 way that we have been talking about Game of yeah. Thrones the last couple so, of days. So I, I I'm not going to get specific. So there will be no spoilers. If you usually fast forward through our Game of Thrones stuff, please don't because what I, all I wanted to say was everyone knows that something major happened at the end of this week's season finale, and the sort of thing that led everyone to a freak out collectively and then caused all of us um, on the you know on the Game of Thrones beat at Grandland, and we're a good number of people to basically make strident cases why certain things were one way and not the way they appeared or, or vice versa. And, you know, getting out of the weeds of that for a second made me appreciate how fantastic this all was. Like, just purely from a fan engagement level, and again, as a fan of the medium, this is fun. This is fun not to know. It, it is exciting to be totally surprised and flummoxed. And, you know, this is an ex- something that Game of Thrones has done, and maybe it's the long game that they were playing that I didn't appreciate, but by conditioning us to expect the worst thing always and bludgeoning us with repeated deaths and mutilations and other cruelties, the fact that now I am arguing for a surprise reprieve, that's kind of interesting, but I'm, that I'm conditioned to expect the other when you know, 30 or 40 years of television would always have told us that main characters stay main characters. So it, it just made me kind of appreciate the, the possibility again. And, and, and I was thinking about that in light of, of you know, the, the, the fun everyone else had in terms of True Detective first season one i again i don't think that anyone is going to be like seeking out old lapd manuals for inspiration as to what is actually going to happen and in fact i don't know if anyone so far true detective season two is going to actually care what happened they're more going to care about how 
I wonder but... whether or not there's something to do with this is really like reaching here. Look, that's fine. Let's just put it all out there. This is a this is an audio pod. They can't see your face. But you despite all of the things that Martin obviously draws on for Game of Thrones, it is for the most part an original story. And there aren't that many original stories anymore. And this is yeah. something that we actually can feel a part of and that we actually seem to have some we have skin in the game. You know what I mean? We we've we've kind of watched this for the last few years and we've gotten more and more involved in the story and obviously all the stuff that's sprouted up around the show with Jason's Ask the Maester column and all the stuff that we do and all the stuff so many sites do. I mean, it's one of the best written about shows. I think because and certainly become the most written about. Yeah, but I think because there's so much to write about outside of like guessing whether or not like fictional characters should or shouldn't be together or do certain things because you could write about like this crazy fictional history and because you can sort of talk about some of the major themes that are happening. It's a very rich text. And in some ways, that's why True Detective was so resonant, I think, too, is because we hadn't seen something like this on major television with stars of that magnitude telling a story in that way and you know i um i have i'm i'm very deeply attached to the the pop culture of my childhood but i think i wonder whether or not part of the reason why people are so excited by some of this stuff is because the alternative is a lot of stuff that we've already experienced like jurassic Absolutely. park like like i mean star wars frankly like some of this avengers stuff i mean a lot of this this is things that we've lived with for 20, 30 years. Um, sometimes we want new stories. Well, it, it, it's, yes, first of all. And it's not just that. I mean, we, I didn't see Jurassic World, but I've, I've, I'm sure I've read a lot about it. And what I gather is the people who liked it, what they liked about it was the way that it admired and respected the first one and sort of made a cheeky wink-wink case for its own existence, like saying, basically admitting that it was corporate shilling but at least it was going to have fun with it yeah which is smart and clever and endearing in the short term but i think it curdles like that that's not really the hallmark of lasting works in any direction and i don't know if you could make a lasting work in any direction about um jessica chastain killing dinosaurs that are high heels again i haven't seen the film that's what i understand it's about um so but so what you're but by suggesting true detective and game of thrones as alternatives to this i think you're right because we're what what those stories are are reminiscent of stories of our childhood or certainly in our case our teenage and young adulthood when we were devouring crime novels maybe more so than fantasy novels but those worlds still have things to offer and things to say i still want to see noir stories even though as you said earlier they're kind of they often follow the same beats and that's part of their charm but yeah i mean i could complain for a long time about about nick pizzolato being the one empowered to do this at the moment when I feel like there are other more original thinkers or original writers who could be, but I'm grateful that he is, especially when you compare it to, um, you know, there's a show that you and I both loved and we were surprised how much we loved it, which was AMC's Better Call Saul. And I think that's an incredibly original work and it's a really good show that's only going to get better, but... Time out. Did, can we just talk about this for a Did you see this Aaron Paul thing? Oh, his news? I was just going to say that it's still a prequel and it's still based on bones that we have devoured recently and I wish it was... I still oh, part of yeah. me wishes it was something else. But, but oh, just Aaron Paul going to Hulu? What? Aaron Paul going to Hulu? Oh, no. He he made some his joke. prank? Right? Yeah, tell me what this was. He apparently, like, did... This guy has never struck a me as a great prankster. tweets and then videos where he was basically like, I'm going to go do the Jesse sequel with Vince Gilligan set in Alaska. And people lost their minds and people were like, oh, my God. And then he was just like, psych. Let me tell you something. He about was just it. like, you got punked, and everybody was just like, uh, 
what? <laughs> and he was like, but you can meet me at this movie theater in Denver to go see Fury Road if you want to. It was like, it was so weird. And I, I had just seen him in Exodus Gods and Kings where he yeah. is in like three scenes and gets whipped once and then watches Christian Bale talk to God for like five minutes. <laughs> That's a good look. Don't knock it. But that was, this just reminded me of like pranks I used to try to pull when I was like 10, <laughs> where I was just like, I'm dead. Just kidding. You're like, mom, I got kidnapped. No, I didn't. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, it's not like a good bit. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you something about Aaron Paul, our our favorite liquor, open mouth liquor. I know Daryl Strawberry. You do? No, but still. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what this was. And I, he, I met him once. You know, he seems, he like, seems a nice, like a good dude. Really nice guy. Really I would love to play Xbox with him, but he should just not, he should not go for like, that's what I'm like saying. Pranks don't prank, but especially dudes. what he was playing with is pretty dangerous because that's not far fetched. Vince Gilligan was told for years that the, you know Better Call Saul would be a good show as a joke, and then he was like, "Yeah, it would be. I'm going to do it now." So also, you know, can't... he has like a page of like Jesse ideas that he just crumbled up and threw in an IKEA waste basket yeah. as he like counted his Battle Creek money. Like he yeah. definitely had thought about this. It was just such sure. a weird thing. I it was almost like. I, I, you know, I don't know. I just it thought was it was very strange. A, it was also a weird move to do two days before your much-awaited next project is announced, and you're and it's you know taking the the co-lead in a Hulu original. Now, is that Central just, Intelligence? No, it's called The Way. And it's Jason Kadams. Oh, um, so yeah. So let me say, this actually sounds like a good project. Um, it it also seems like a very smart move for him because it's him and Michelle Monaghan who bringing everything full circle here and it's about a, a couple who goes through some stuff and like already i'm in like good actors in a show about people doing stuff that seems like what hulu should be making since the networks aren't making it they're making shows about wesley snipes wearing suits i, mean, I don't even know what that show is we'll talk about it in the fall but it is interesting though that aaron paul did have the mo- that moment with like need for speed and exodus where he was like i'm gonna take these emmys and being everyone's favorite schnook and i'm gonna be a movie star and then america was like no you're not no, you're not. So the fact that it seemed like it was doubly plausible that he was going to do a Jesse show because maybe he was already at that point in his Honestly, career dude, if they were like, we're going to do Jesse in the Yukon after Better Call Saul, I'd be like, okay. Yeah. And <laughs> so was it. everyone. And so that's weird. So it sort of took, it was both too believable and too close to his actual news to, to I mean, for it to be anything other than disastrous, right? Jokes, man. I don't know. Jokes. You got to be careful with jokes. That's the lesson. All right, man. So we should wrap it up. Yeah. Um, let's just. Can we just throw in a, a quick plug for something that we were going to do months ago and we forgot, which is just that Jamie XX, who is a producer and is he a songwriter, or DJ? I don't know I what think you call you these call guys. Him all those things. He's he, definitely a DJ. Yeah, he has a his debut solo album came out a couple weeks ago called In Color, and you and I were lucky enough to get promos of this a few months ago, and it blew our minds. And so that's why we kind of forgot when it actually came out because well, that sounds really obnoxious. But we were really into it. We were still really into it. This dude, man, he made a great record. Yeah, there's actually a really good uh, piece on Jamie XX on Grantland by Kerry Batten. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a fascinating figure because he's sort of the he's is he the brains, the bronze, the beauty behind the XX, and he's just a guy who is seems like a decent, quiet chap, but he's somehow able to bridge all these worlds because his music, though mostly instrumental, has so much melody and so much personality. I mean, he he made that the Drake song "Take Care," right? Or that was taken from a song he had made earlier. Yeah. Um, and there's on this record, he gives Young Thug his best, most mainstream look ever. Um, but they're also just these really beautiful, like like 
Brit poppy downer dance floor tracks with the, the singers from the XX. It's it's really impressive, even if you generally don't like things that could be labeled British DJ. Great record. We should do a music roundup because there's a couple of things I'm listening to now. Yeah, I want to talk about Hop Along. Do you like Hop Along? I do like Hop Along. I like I Tenement. Listen. I want to listen. Let's talk about all these bands next week. All right, we got a big summer of interesting topics and get you know, your mustaches be... ready. I yeah, seriously get your mustaches. Tighten up your bolos. Get your get your weight up, people, because it's feral season. It is feral season, and God, it just feels good on the back of your neck, and it tastes so good when it hits your lips. All right, man. Great job, Bransky. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes, or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.